What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. It could soon become easier to get energy projects approved if the new debt limit deal passes. How would this impact everyday Americans? An April CDC conference was dubbed a super spreader event. This after a large number of the mostly vaccinated attendees caught COVID. A new documentary about the gender identity trend is set to be released soon. We'll hear from the movie's producer. The suicide rate among male farmers is more than double the national average, so rural pastors are taking suicide prevention courses. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is on the new debt limit deal. We examine how it will impact energy projects. It doesn't include sweeping changes, but it does address the permitting process. How could Washington's decisions about access to energy affect you? I wanted to learn more about this, so I spoke with a policy expert. Have a listen. Please welcome Nick Loris, Vice President of Public Policy at C3 Solutions. Nick, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. This debt deal is said to have provisions that speed up the permitting process for energy projects. What can we expect to happen here? Yeah, there are some elements that surely we should be excited about. You know, there are elements of Representative Garrett Graves' Builder Act that would clarify and speed up uh, some of the elements of the National Environmental Policy Act, which has been a very uh, cumbersome and problematic law that has uh, hurt a number of energy projects, not just fossil fuels, but clean energy projects. And so this bill would modernize some of those elements of NEPA at the same time, I think there are a number of frustrations that the permitting processes and and much needed reforms don't nearly go far enough to actually fix the systemic problems that we have with our permitting problems, because it's really hard to build anything in the United States, not just energy projects, but everything from housing to highways and to have wholesome comprehensive permitting reform, we need to go much further and essential for energy. Um, If we want affordable, reliable power and if we want to make the emissions reductions that we need, uh, permitting reform is at the foremost um, problems that we need to fix. And and while this bill does make some important uh, provisions, it, it doesn't go nearly as far as it should. So there are two types of energy projects, green and then also conventional fuels. What needs to happen in terms of both of these here? Yeah, the, the nice thing is the, the fix should fix them all. Uh, and, and one of the biggest challenges is to fix what's known as judicial review. And that is the fact that both clean energy projects and conventional projects get held up for years in the courts. If you look at something like the Keystone XL pipeline, you know that was initially proposed back in 2008. And here we are more than 15 years later and we don't have a pipeline. Uh, the same has been said for transmission projects, for renewable projects, as well as for advanced modular nuclear reactors. All of these are facing a lot of the same problems, and that is onerously long permitting processes and then being held up years in the courts. So if there is an opportunity to take a a second swing at permitting reform, and I think there should be from policymakers on both sides of the aisle, they really need to fix this aspect of judicial review and trying to fix why activists shouldn't be able to hold up these projects for years in court. So, Nick, you talk about this judicial review. What's going to happen to the American grid if all these conventional 
power generations are retiring due to this push for green energy, and then these new clean energy projects are being held up in court. That's one of the biggest concerns is the affordability and reliability of energy prices. And uh, if there's this huge push for electrification through government regulations and subsidies, if we don't have the ability to actually expand supply and build new energy infrastructure, everything from new power generating sources to new transmission lines, uh, it's only going to put more strain on the grid. And you have a, a number of independent agencies already warning that the grid is already strained. And if we can't build here in the United States, uh, it only puts consumers more at risk, again, not just from an energy price standpoint, but also from the lights going out you know, for days at a time. Yes, and of course, there's a government watchdog that warned of a higher risk of increased brownouts and blackouts this summer because of this push for green energy when these conventional fuels are retiring. Nick Loris, President, Vice President of Public Policy at C3 Solutions, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Let's continue diving into the debt limit deal. How are markets reacting? In spite of concerns, things seem to be looking favorable. Here's more. Wall Street opened higher on Tuesday as lawmakers tentatively agreed to raise the nation's debt limit. Markets at this point are already expecting that the deal will go through. Among the items in the deal, the biggest one is the suspension of the debt limit until 2025. Investors took this favorably. Here's chief strategist Sam Burns from investment advisory firm Mill Street Research. I think that's generally been viewed positively in the sense that it wasn't just raising it by some X dollar amount um, that would then have to worry about it running into it again. And the fact that it was suspended rather than raised uh, maybe raises the possibility that they would just simply do away with it at some point um, in, in the next couple of years, as, which is a lot of economists and other people have been calling for for, for quite a while. Another item in the deal was spending cuts. The bill will cut a wide swath of government spending to last year's levels, a decrease of about 9 percent, according to Reuters. The concern is whether a reduction in spending could have a drag on U.S. economic growth. Burns says it will have a slight impact. The general principles that came out were that uh, uh, discretionary spending uh, would be frozen basically at current levels for the next couple of years, the discretionary spending that actually drives a lot of, uh, you know, uh, spending in the economy. You know, my view is that growth is already fairly moderate and will probably slow down a little bit further, but probably not get into a real recession uh, anytime soon, at least this year. The debt limit deal is set to face its first real hurdle Tuesday, which is to clear the Rules Committee. The House of Representatives Rules Committee is due to consider the bill in the afternoon. Most probably investors expected some sort of deal to be reached. The talking points that have come out suggest that the net effect on the on fiscal policy will be relatively small. This deal so far, what we've seen, does not really move the needle that much. The macro impact will be pretty modest. The markets never really went down that much on the debt ceiling worries. A successful vote in the Rules Committee will set up a vote by the full House on Wednesday. Kevin McCarthy said on Monday he was not worried the Rules Committee would kill the bill. A COVID-19 outbreak occurred at a CDC conference last month. This despite most attendees being vaccinated. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more information on the flare-up. About 1,800 CDC staffers and others gathered in April in a hotel in Atlanta where the CDC is headquartered. On the last day of the conference, several people notified organizers that they had tested positive for COVID-19. Attendees were surveyed to try to figure out how many people had tested positive. 
Approximately 80% of attendees filled out the survey. Among those, about 180 said they had tested positive for COVID-19. Over 99% of respondents had received at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose. The number of unvaccinated people who got sick, if any, was not disclosed. Officials also did not break down the vaccinated between those who had received a dose of the updated bivalent vaccines and those who had not. No clinical trial efficacy data are available for the bivalent shots, even though they were first cleared nine months ago. Officials maintain they protect against severe illness. However, non-peer-reviewed CDC publications and other studies say the protection is short-lived. FDA vaccine panel advisor Dr. Paul A. Offit cited two studies suggesting that bivalent boosters, which target the original COVID-19 strain and two Omicron subvariants, do not elicit superior immune responses. Sometimes uh, those who are representing public health will, will make claims about the bivalence vaccine that just aren't true. Offit stressed that booster dosing is probably best reserved for the people most likely to need protection against severe disease. FDA spokesperson Abigail Capabianco says evidence continues to support COVID-19 bivalent vaccines used as boosters in all age groups. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. From COVID to culture, we now take a look at a new documentary called Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities. We hear from the director and producer who worked with the Epic Times in making the movie. Transgender, during the last four years, it's been a very hot topic, of course. And it's been heavily uh, pushed in various areas in our culture. And it's targeting children. This is the, the very serious part. And it's tearing families apart as well. The epic original docudrama, Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities, explores the complex issues surrounding transgenderism and youth. Transgender, it sounds so harmless. And it's made very, very cool through the media. It's destroyed my health. I didn't really know if I was gonna make it. Producer Tobias Elpage introduced the film at a panel discussion on gender confusion at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. The event was held in Orlando, Florida earlier this month. We spoke with panelists after the screening to get their take on the movie. I think that it's really important that we tell kids that they are perfectly fine and beautiful just the way they are. They don't need to change anything about themselves. It places a wedge between the child and their parents. This is an issue about reality itself. So transgenderism at its core is a denial of objective reality. If you can't grapple with reality as it actually is, you can never be mentally healthy. The movie will debut on Epic TV on June 19th. This is the most important question. Why are they all doing this? Coming up next, in a fiercely competitive agricultural world, sustaining a small-scale farm takes more than just hard work. We hear from one couple who is making it happen. Texas could soon ban all offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion in public universities. We have more on that for you in just a minute here on NTD News Today.
Welcome back. We're continuing our coverage in Texas, where the legislature has approved a bill seeking to end diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at public universities in the state. Under the bill, universities would be required to dismantle their DEI offices, programs, and mandatory training within six months. The hiring practices at these institutions would also need to be colorblind and sex neutral. But the bill would not impact admissions, course curriculum, student organizations, research, or data collection. According to the Texas Tribune, Republican State Senator Brandon Creighton hailed the bill's passage as the end of political oaths, compelled speech, and racial profiling in university hiring. Democratic State Senator Nathan Johnson called the bill lazy and remarkably unimaginative and sees it as hurting diversity initiatives. The bill now awaits the Texas governor's signature. If signed into law, it would make Texas the second state after Florida to have this kind of law. It's not easy to run a small farm in the U.S. Small farms face stiff competition, are less tolerant of poor weather, and many have gone bankrupt. However, one family farm has figured out a way to stay small. Let's take a look. Fairy Farms, a small farm with 2,000 acres in Litchfield, Michigan, has been around for over a century. Scott Ferry and his wife Ellie are the fourth generation of the Ferry family to own and run the farm. I love food and I love sharing food with people and the opportunity to plant the crop that feeds the animal and bring that to the plate of a person and share it with them felt a lot closer to the goals that I think we have. Fairy farms used to raise hogs, cattle and sheep and produce dairy products. But after taking over the farm from Scott's dad in 2008, Scott and Ellie experienced economic challenges. You're selling your finished good at a wholesale price, you're paying retail for everything and it just financially is hard to be sustainable on a smaller scale. In 2018, the ferries closed the dairy operation due to high costs. USDA data shows that dairy businesses were profitable only one year out of the last 10. But during the COVID pandemic, the ferries saw a new trend. When consumers couldn't find meat in the grocery stores, they turned to local farms. And it was a dramatic increase in our ability to, to service our community. And that, that was that was a warming feeling for us. We could actually feed the people right here locally in which we live. The ferries began focusing on raising cattle and directly selling to consumers. But soon, they hit a roadblock. A long-term USDA inspected meatpacking capacity shortage. We were working with six different processors throughout the state. We spent a lot of time on the road and logistics, moving product from place to place, just trying to get capacity. Um, we said no to sales on that business because no one had the processing capacity. Many other small farmers face the same issue. So the idea of building a meat packing facility became apparent a year and a half ago. This was born out of the desire to assist other small farmers in some ways that they could still be relevant and financially sustainable as a family farm. The ferries and investors raised $3 million to build a USDA-inspected meat processing facility, Carnival Foods. The facility has state-of-the-art equipment and a daily capacity of 5,000 pounds. It provides co-packing, private labeling and flavor development services.
It makes it substantially simpler from a distribution standpoint, for, um, from a warehousing standpoint, a storage standpoint. Um, the timing and the freshness of the product and being able to get it here in our facility and work on you know, a timeline that is conducive to the farm and the products that we want to produce, that's been a huge upswing. From growing the cattle crops to direct selling to consumers, the ferries have built a vertically integrated supply chain from farm to table. Instead of just being a part of a commodity in industry that's now globalized, we just became further and further disconnected from our food in that space. So by shrinking this down to something that we could produce food directly to the consumer, it felt a lot more rewarding. The ferries' business approach has allowed them to sustain the small farm life they love. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Litchfield, Michigan. More on farms, rural pastors in states like Minnesota and South Dakota are being trained to prevent suicide in the farming community. Farmers often experience high pressure and loneliness, sometimes with tragic consequences. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the crisis. Farming can be a tough, lonely job. Bob Worth is planting corn on his family farm in Minnesota. He knows the hardships all too well. Farming is a very unique occupation. I mean, it's a stressful occupation. Uh, a lot of times you don't make any money. Um, it's, it's something that you have to love. According to the CDC, the suicide rate among male agricultural workers is about two and a half times higher than the national average. Sheep farmer Craig Teese accepts it's an occupational risk. Stress and depression and suicide in a farmer is part of it. You just hope that it isn't your part. Minnesota's Departments of Agriculture and Health launched a four-week prevention program this spring. Around 80 pastors are taking part. They say there are a variety of reasons behind the mental health crisis. Reverend Robert Muller says pressure to keep the farm going at any cost is a large factor. And also the, the family dynamics. If the, if the farm has been in the family for a long time, there's, there's this thing of, of keeping, keeping it within, the, keeping it going within the family for the next generations. In South Dakota, Reverend Alan Blankenfeld brings his counsel out of the church and into the fields. So I think it's important for pastors to realize you have to get out of the office and be willing to get your, your, your feet dirty and go out into the field or go out into the pastures and, and visit with your people. Todd Sanderson is one of the farmers Blankenfeld has visited. He gets emotional about his work. I, excuse me. <laughs> I love what I do. Uh, you know, there's such variety in this occupation, so many challenges. For Reverend Jolene Gallatin, suicide prevention is personal. At 15, she tried to kill herself a year after her mother's suicide. If there are people who could have been there for our family, I wouldn't be talking about my attempt. I wouldn't be talking about my mom's death by suicide. Not just for farmers, for anyone considering suicide, help is available. Call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 or visit 988lifeline.org. Andrew Thomas. NTD News. In other news, a lawyer says his client was beaten in prison. He's requesting more security for the main suspect in a teenager's disappearance in 2005. 
Dutch citizen Jorn van der Sloot is imprisoned in the capital of Peru. He's scheduled for extradition to the U.S. in connection with the disappearance of Natalie Holloway while she was on a school trip to Aruba. Van der Sloot was sentenced for killing another woman in Peru in 2010. He hasn't been charged in connection with Holloway, but is wanted by U.S. authorities for taking thousands of dollars in payments from Holloway's family while they seek the location of her remains. Officials are skeptical about the request from Van der Sloot's lawyer. They say the alleged prison beating hasn't been confirmed. And just ahead, Beijing turns down an invitation to meet with top U.S. officials, halting any potential dialogue with their new defense minister. And South Korea aims to be among the world's biggest arms dealers. It's partnering with Poland to conquer the European weapons market. We'll have those details for you when we return. Welcome back. Beijing has turned down an invitation to meet with top U.S. officials this coming weekend. The decision effectively shuts down any potential dialogue between Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Beijing's new defense minister, Li Shang-Fu. The Pentagon issued a statement about the situation. It stressed the importance of open military communication between the countries to prevent conflict. For weeks, U.S. officials have worked to secure a meeting with Beijing, including a direct letter from Austin to Lee. Attempts at setting up frequent face-to-face communication continue an ongoing stalemate between Democratic allies and the Chinese Communist Party. Staying on China, a private jet used by Tesla CEO Elon Musk arrived in Beijing today. This as the business magnate is expected to meet senior Chinese officials and visit Tesla's Shanghai plant. The trip is Musk's first visit to China in three years. His private jet was shown leaving Alaska before crossing over Japan and South Korea, according to a flight tracking website. The jet with its identifying tail number was later seen at Beijing Capital International Airport, The Chinese foreign ministry said Beijing welcomes Musk or other business leaders to visit China and promote mutual beneficial cooperation. China is Tesla's second largest market after the U.S., and the Shanghai plant is the electric car maker's largest production hub. China today sent three astronauts to its now fully operational space station. The spacecraft and its passengers lifted off atop a rocket from a satellite launch center in northwestern China. The astronauts, including China's first civilian astronaut, will replace the three-member crew at the station. China built its own space station after it was excluded from the International Space Station. The U.S. is concerned over the Chinese space program's intimate ties with the People's Liberation Army, the military branch of the ruling Communist Party. The CCP has steadily been increasing spending on its space program. It has also developed space weapons, which could be used to attack or disable the satellites of other countries. Experts warn the U.S. space is vulnerable to attacks from China and Russia. South Korea hopes to conquer the European arms market by providing high-quality weapons faster than other countries. It formed a partnership with Poland, which offers manufacturing capacity and a sales pipeline into Europe. South Korea wants to become one of the world's biggest arms dealers. It's hoping a $14 billion defense deal with Poland can lay the groundwork for that. A South Korean defense official said the partnership means Seoul provides the technology, while Poland offers manufacturing capacity and a sales pipeline into Europe. 
we can uh, jointly uh, export and manufacture the uh, weapon system and then uh, export those weapon systems to nearby countries. The deal involves hundreds of rocket launchers, tanks, self-propelled howitzers and fighter aircraft. It was South Korea's biggest arms sale ever. South Korea had promoted its weapons to Poland before the war, but the invasion of Ukraine increased Poland's interest. We get lots of uh, requests request from the Polish government uh, for a K2 tank and K9 hoisers and F-A-50. At this factory in a South Korean coastal town, six huge automated robots and more than 150 production workers are churning out 51-ton K9 howitzers destined for Poland. The self-propelled guns use NATO standard ammunition, offering performance comparable to more expensive Western options. A company director who was involved in the Poland deal said many East European countries used to buy defense products only in Europe. But it is more well known that you can buy at a low price and have it delivered quickly from South Korean companies too. The first shipment of K2 tanks and K9 howitzers arrived in Poland just months after the deals were signed, and more have been delivered since. Country's interest in uh, South Korea's offer may only grow considering the limited production capacity of German's defense industry, which is a major arms supplier in the region. In 2022, South Korea's global arms sales jumped to more than $17 billion, $10 billion more than the year before. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, residential areas in Moscow being attacked by drones, the first such attack of the Ukraine war. Tensions are high in Kosovo after over 30 NATO peacekeeping soldiers were injured during clashes with protesters. Stay tuned for that story and more after this break. Good to have you back with us. We're going to Europe. The Ukraine war is coming home as Moscow was hit today by a group of drones. It was the first attack in the capital's residential areas. Meanwhile, Russia continues its bombardment of Kyiv. Russia said Ukraine launched its biggest ever drone attack on Moscow on Tuesday, bringing the Ukraine war to the heart of the capital. The Russian Defense Ministry said its air defenses shot down five drones and diverted three. The early morning raid targeted some of Moscow's wealthiest areas, including a neighborhood where Putin and members of Russia's elite have residences. This confirms once again the necessity to continue this special military operation in Ukraine and to achieve the goals set. Authorities said two people were injured, one of whom was hospitalized. Moscow residents reported hearing explosions before dawn. I've got thoughts of moving somewhere safer. Well, it's logical. It was meant to happen. What else did they expect? The drone attacks deep inside Russia have intensified in recent weeks ahead of an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. Strikes that Moscow has blamed on Ukraine have hit oil pipelines and even the Kremlin earlier this month. 
A Ukrainian presidential aide denied Kiev was directly involved in the Moscow attack. Meanwhile, explosions rocked Kiev in the early hours of Tuesday, as the city was targeted by Russia. At least one person was killed and four were injured. Ukraine's military said the third attack in 24 hours was massive, coming from different directions and in several waves. In Kosovo, over dozens of NATO peacekeeping soldiers are injured after clashing with Serb protesters yesterday. Serbia's president put the army on the highest level of combat alert. The U.S. and the European Union are calling on both sides to de-escalate the situation. Loud bangs echoed through the air as Serbian protesters clashed with NATO peacekeeping soldiers on Monday in the town of Zvechan in Kosovo. About 25 soldiers were injured while defending its town hall, as well as those in two other locations, the NATO-led mission said. It condemned the violence. The tense situation developed after ethnic Albanian mayors took office in northern Kosovo's Serb-majority area. The U.S. and its allies, which have strongly backed the country's independence, rebuked Kosovo for the move last week. Serbs boycotted the local elections, and some saw a turnout of 3.5 percent. The Serbs are demanding that the Kosovo government remove ethnic Albanian mayors from town halls and allow local administrations financed by Belgrade to resume their work. Serbia's President Aleksandar Vucic put the army on the highest level of alert, while urging Serbs in Kosovo not to get entangled in conflict. I am urging the Serbs in Kosovo, and I know how they feel and how difficult it is for them, not to get in a conflict with NATO. Kosovo's president has accused Vucic of destabilizing the country. But Igor Simic, the deputy head of the biggest Belgrade-backed Kosovo Serb party, says it's actually the other way around. He accused Kosovo's prime minister of stoking the chaos. Ethnic Albanians make up more than 90% of the population in Kosovo as a whole, but Serbs comprise a majority in the north. They've never accepted its 2008 declaration of independence from Serbia and still see Belgrade as their capital more than two decades after the Kosovo-Albanian uprising against repressive Serbian rule. British ministers are investigating how the U.K. handled the COVID-19 pandemic. They have been instructed to hand over messages from the former prime minister. Well, I think it's really important that we learn the lessons of COVID, and that's why the inquiry was established. And we want to make sure that whatever lessons there are to be learned are learned, and we do that in a spirit of transparency and, and candor. The government ordered the investigation in 2021 after Britain recorded one of the world's highest total number of deaths from COVID. Earlier in the day, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said the government was weighing options as to how to proceed. Now the investigators have given the government two more days to hand over ex-Prime Minister Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages and diaries. The office responsible for overseeing the operation of government has refused to hand over some of the messages and records, saying they're not related to the pandemic, but the head investigator still wants to see them. A so-called stumble memorial stone was laid today in southern German city for the late father of the U.S. ambassador to Germany, Amy Gutman. Gutman, who is of German-Jewish descent, said her father, who fled from the Nazis to India in 1934, would be amazed at how much Germany has acknowledged its past. Owning up to its history and applying the lessons of this history to counter new waves of bigotry and anti-Semitism, welcoming Ukrainians, 
welcoming all of us whose ancestors had to flee here. Gutman was the president of the University of Pennsylvania until her nomination as ambassador by President Biden in 2022. The Stumblestones, or Stolpersteine, were invented by artist Gunter Demnig more than 30 years ago to pay tribute to citizens who fell victim to the Nazi regime. The brash Stumblestones bear the name, date of birth, and date of death or escape of a Nazi-era victim. They can be found across Germany and are installed outside the victim's former place of living. Coming up, we bring you the unusual sport of cheese rolling. Runners in the UK test their speed and agility as they chase down a steep slope after a huge hunk of cheese. Traditional dumplings in the country of Georgia are a national symbol and source of pride. Stay tuned for more on what makes this special cuisine so tasty when we return. We're going to go now to a somewhat unusual English tradition, cheese rolling. In the annual competition in the UK, runners chase a seven-pound hunk of cheese down a very steep hill, and the winner gets to keep the cheese. NTD's Malcolm Hudson was there. In the idyllic English countryside, hidden in the woods, hundreds of people gather for... <laughs> cheese rolling. A seven-pound wheel of cheese is released down the incredibly steep hill and dozens of people hurtle after it, sometimes flying through the air as much as the cheese itself. People come from all across the world, like this man from Tennessee. So you've just uh, run down the hill, how do you feel? Oh, it's exhilarating, it was so much fun. Historical records for this extreme sporting tradition date back at least 200 years, and it's believed to be around 600 years old. There are multiple races throughout the day, and the winner of each race wins the cheese. And uh, how do you feel having won the race? Uh, we're excited, <laughs> but I can't I can, I can eat cheese. <laughs> we can't eat cheese. The world-famous event went ahead despite safety concerns from the local council. There are often injuries of one kind or another. A sports team catches people at the bottom of the hill. They say they've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah, they come down at some pace, right? But we're used to it, so. Yeah, it's good fun. You see all the people running down, you get a good view as well. It's always good, especially as there's thousands of people here. So, yeah, we just put our shoulders on the line and smash them, really. They also help people who have been hurt. Stewie Hendry sets the races and comes dressed for the parts. This hat's like 14 years old. It's like living a dream. I can't believe it's still together. <laughs> I wash it this year. My wife's like, why have you still got that? <laughs> This old tradition means a lot to the locals, and for everyone involved, it's good old-fashioned fun. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News. The cheese can reach speeds of up to 70 miles per hour, and the people chasing after it must be going pretty fast, too. It's not for the faint of heart. One woman from Canada this year hit her head and knocked herself unconscious while running down, only to wake up in a medical tent and be told she'd won the race. Still, she was happy to earn herself cheese. In the mountainous Caucasus nation of Georgia, traditional dumplings are a source of national pride and identity. Eating them also involves certain etiquette. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the delicious details. Kinkali are typically filled with a mix of ground beef, pork, herbs, and spices. They're usually served steaming hot in platters by the dozen. Georgian kinkali are a national symbol and source of pride. 
and there are traditional rules for consumption. Typically, eaters hold a single kinkali by its tough top. Then they bite into the soft underbelly, making sure to catch any escaping juices in the process. You know, however, I'm not Georgian. The first rule I have learned when I come to Georgia is that how to eat kinkali. You should know that it's eaten by the hands, by your hands, as the first, uh, as the first rule. The second rule is no condiments. You know, when you use uh, something adds um, instead of pepper, uh, you can go to prison in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, of course a joke, but uh, it's uh, forbidden to use any adds uh, instead of uh, um, pepper and uh, any spoons, knives, and something else. It's, uh, it's forbidden. The exact origins of the dumpling in Georgia are unknown, but it's been enjoyed across the country for centuries. Different regions still argue over who invented it and who makes it the best. Kinkali have been cooked in Georgia since the dawn of time, and the recipe hasn't changed much since. Our ancestors cooked them the same way. There are a lot of regions in Georgia that claim they invented it, and there are slight differences between the way they cook them. Modern versions include an array of different stuffing options, such as cheese, mushrooms, and potatoes. Kinkali making has also become a hit among tourists. In the capital, Tbilisi, retired doctor Irina Jandieri offers cooking classes in her living room. It's fun, it's fascinating, and in the end, it's very tasty. So I don't think it's difficult to make kinkali. I think my guests do it with great pleasure. I would not say it's difficult at all. For home cooks and dumpling enthusiasts, that's welcome news. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. <laughs> After the break, Parkinson's patients at an Australian gym throw punches and stay light on their feet. The program offers participants an all-around workout. Details to come right here on NTD News Today. Good to have you back. Just in time for some sports news. Tennis stars heading to the French Open in Paris have a new tool to block nasty online comments. It uses artificial intelligence to filter social media discussion. The software is made by company Bodyguard AI. The tournament's official social media channels will use it, as well as players' individual accounts. It will filter out certain comments and also send tournament officials daily reports about abusive comments and accounts. The French firm's head of sport said that in many cases, tennis stars are more vulnerable to cyberbullying. Tennis champion Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open in 2021, citing depression and anxiety. Australian tennis star Nick Kyrgios has described suicidal thoughts that came to him during the 2019 Australian Open. A group of Parkinson's patients are throwing punches for an exercise class. The boxing program helps them maintain speed, power, coordination, and balance. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Daryl Kennedy may not be as energetic as he used to be, but he still enjoys exercising. Exhilarating to know you've done something properly and you feel that, oh yeah, I can still do it. In 2019, 66-year-old Kennedy was told he was suffering from Parkinson's disease. Since the diagnosis, the disease has progressed. Sense of smell, the tremor, um, balance starts to become not as stable on your feet as what you used to be. 
Kennedy and 20 other Parkinson's patients meet weekly in a boxing gym to train. In the Melbourne Boxing Program, participants do an all-around workout. Exercises include cardio, balance, and flexibility, as well as plenty of punches. Beyond the physical side of the classes, participants also mention the sense of community, spirituality, and healing. When they first come in, usually their heads are down, they're a little bit, they've had a hard day, a hard week. They leave smiling, they leave happy. Kennedy used to be a marathon runner. Now tying his shoelaces is a daily challenge. But the senior isn't pulling any punches. Never give up. This disease wants to take me. It's going to have a fight if it wants to take me. According to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, Parkinson's disease affects 2 to 3% of the global population over 65. More than 100,000 Australians have the condition, and approximately 32 new cases are diagnosed every day. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Now on to a little dose of health advice. Liver fat can be pretty dangerous, yet the only way to get rid of it is by losing weight. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. New research shows that exercise may help to reduce fat around the liver. This could potentially make a healthier liver more accessible to millions of people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFOLD. NAFOLD can be quite dangerous to long-term health. Liver fat can cause inflammation and scarring. This can lead to liver fibrosis, cirrhosis and end-stage liver disease. There's no cure for these conditions except for limiting liver fat storage. A new study shows that about 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise can significantly reduce liver fat in people with NAFOLD. 150 minutes is the exact amount recommended by public health experts. For the study, researchers considered a 30% reduction in liver fat to be a meaningful improvement. It was measured by MRI scans. They also reviewed 14 randomized controlled trials, so the work included a total of 551 participants. The researchers found that exercise was three and a half times more likely to achieve this 30% reduction in liver fat independent of weight loss compared to standard care. They then found the optimal dose of exercise. They learned that 39% of patients who exercised briskly for 150 minutes per week or more achieved a greater treatment response than 26% who exercised less. Moderate exercise would be a brisk walk where you might start getting a little sweaty but can still converse with a walking partner. Light cycling is another option. If you've got NAFOLD or would like to give yourself a better chance of preventing it, start moving more. Don't get caught up on all the numbers, focus on making exercise a part of your daily routine. The more physical activity you are getting, the better, even if it doesn't lead to weight loss. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.